When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Hey, Partially Examined Life listeners, Mark here. I'm pleased to introduce a special cross-posting of the latest episode of our latest edition to the Partially Examined Life podcast network, Constellary Tales. The episode is on Philip K. Dick and serves as a nice follow-up to our episode on him, number 175 on Blade Runner. This one is on Minority Report. I am the guest. And you should know that the two hosts of this have a long history with PEL. Ken Gerber drew the PEL logo. And his brother, Brian Hurt, has been one of my best friends since middle school and was a person I had asked to be a host of Partially Examined Life before I was clear that this would actually be a philosophy podcast. So I encourage them to get this thing going. And they are brilliant guys, great writers themselves. I hope you all go subscribe. You can get their episodes straight from partiallyexaminedlife.com in the recent episodes tab. Or better yet, go straight to constellary.com or find them on Apple Podcasts or other places. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Constellary Tales podcast. This is episode number six. I'm Ken Gerber. And I'm Brian Hurt. In addition to hosting the show, Brian and I are the publishers and editors of Constellary Tales the Magazine. Issue 2 is available now at constellary.com and features five short works of speculative fiction. On today's podcast, we're discussing The Minority Report, Philip K. Dick's 1956 short story about futuristic anti-crime. Joining us for the philosophical conversation is Mark Linsemeyer, founder of The Partially Examined Life and co-host of its podcast. Mark and Ken are also going head-to-head on our first-ever quantitative trivia challenge. Bet you didn't know that, Mark. All that, plus, as always, our spoiler-free recommendations of the month. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thanks, guys. It's a long-time dream. (laughs) (laughs) Before we dive into the conversation... Brian, why don't you give us a spoiler-free synopsis of The Minority Report? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks. Minority Report is a short story set in a slightly alternate world where, among other things, there are a small number of humans who are precognitive called precogs. Now, these are people who have really limited physical and mental capacities. In fact, in the story, they're referred to as being deformed and retarded. An unfortunate word, but probably time appropriate. Uh, These have... These people have the gift, however, to see into the future, thus their name. Now, society has harnessed their powers to create a new type of law enforcement called pre-crime. When these precogs see that a crime is going to be committed, the pre-crime branch springs into action and they arrest the guilty party before the crime is committed. Uh, The story begins with the head of the pre-crime unit, whose name is John Anderton, is begrudgingly showing the system to his likely successor, And almost immediately, there is a hiccup in the system that is shocking to him. And from 
there, I think we probably should pause to let people go ahead and read the story. It's pretty widely available online in print and audio form. Yeah, thanks, Brian. We'll be back to talk about it in a minute. And here we are. We're that back. was actually a second. <laughs> All right. So, Brian, why don't you flesh out that synopsis a little bit more? So the big twist to get things going is John Anderton is himself accused of being a murderer by the pre-crime. In fact, he is essentially guilty before he has even committed a murder. And there's a longer story. Um, guys, is this actually a short story? Is this a novella? How long is this thing? Uh, it's 20 pages. It's a short story for sure. I consider okay. it a short story too. Okay. So enough goes on in this where uh, Anderton is having to get to the bottom of why he, according to the precogs, is going to murder a person named Leopold Kaplan, who he hasn't even met, doesn't know who this person is. And it turns out this person is a general who would like to see pre-crime discredited through the course of pre-crime coming to power. The power that had been in the hands of the military has, has weakened. And John Anderton originally thinks that he has been set up somehow by his new successor or possibly even his wife who works at the Bureau of Pre-Crime. What's happening is really a clever thing. There are three precogs, and there are times where two of them have the same vision of the future and the third might not. And it's assumed that as long as two of the three are seeing the same thing, then that's what's actually going to be the future. And that third report, which is called the minority report, is just discarded as being an erroneous interpretation of a vision of the future. That's where the title comes from. In that minority report, Anderson actually is not going to kill this person, but that's only one of the three precogs who think so. The other two think he's going to be a murderer. What actually happens is all three of the precogs have different visions of the future. And the reason for that is they're all seeing into the future at different periods and unlike most people who are accused of committing a crime or actually found guilty of committing a crime, Anderton has knowledge of these reports as they're coming in. So the first report of his being a murderer comes in. He sees that. He decides he's not going to become a murderer. And that's what the second precog is seeing. Then he realizes that by not being a murderer, he's going to bring down pre-crime and he decides, well, he's going to actually murder that guy again in order to keep pre-crime going. And so that's what the third precog sees. So it really is three different minority reports. So that's the summary of what's happening with these three precogs and John Anderton in the story. It has a little more life and it's a lot more fun to read it as it's happening. Yeah, I, I think those uh, I think those precogs... Easy for I, you to say. <laughs> I almost think of those precogs as chess players who can see one move further ahead than the previous, right? Like the, the, the second one who sees that he's not going to commit murder is looking one move past the first one. And then the third precog is looking two moves past. Does that seem right to you guys? Yeah. One sees check in one move and one sees check in three moves somehow. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so it was interesting to me that it's, 
they don't actually specify how the precogs are they're uh submitting their predictions through constant utterances babbling and it's it's it could be about it's about the future it's established they can see uh up to 1 to 2 weeks in advance um and it's not just murder uh like in the movies so it's unclear like how they're getting the information now if they if they're actually seeing it so in the movie they're seeing it and everything in fact the there's a a hookup so that the monitors can see what the precogs are seeing and analyze that visual data independently of how the precogs themselves would interpret it but in this it's just the precogs are saying something and it's implied because of their severe mental handicaps they're not interpreting anything in fact their their utterances have to be sent to a computer and it's the computers. And in fact, in one place in the story, it actually says, well, how do you check if the computer is right? Well, you run it against another computer. Well, what if the two computers disagree? Well, then you have a third computer and you com- So it's actually the minority report in that part of the story when uh, Anderton is listening to actually Whitwer talk on the radio about this. It's actually the the majority report is is delivered by the agreement of two computers. It's only then later when Anderton goes back into the lab and tries to get the raw data, tries to get his own minority report, that it's actually referred to, okay, which of the individuals is does, does this come from? So so presumably then each one of them is hooked up to a computer. So saying, is it the prediction of the computer or is it the prediction of the precog is kind of just merely a semantic difference. It's, you know, w- w- where do you see it along the way? My point is that the you, since you can't assume they're actually seeing it, right? If they were having visions, then if you were planning to commit a crime, all you have to do is just wear a mask for like two weeks <laughs> and then you kill somebody and then you keep the mask on for another two weeks and they just say, someone in a mask killed somebody. Like that's what they'd see. But somehow they and they they output a name. They're able to know more than uh, just the you know the visual experience. See, now, normally I'd be opposed to us discussing how to circumvent the legal system for the purpose of devising a murder. Uh, but since there's, these precogs aren't real, I have to say I was trying to think if I wanted to commit a murder in this world, how does one spoof the system? It seems like it should be spoofable, but I don't really know. Brainstorm, guys? Well, I have a question for Mark. Um, you say there's a movie? I didn't even – no, actually, Ken, that's what <laughs> happens in the movie, right, is trying – how do you spoof the system to commit murder in the movie? That's a totally different twist that they play with, which is, well, you commit the same murder twice that looks the exact same way. And so the first time you do it, you have some disposable criminal kill the person – or kill some person, and then you go kill the person you want later and – it looks like the precogs are seeing the same thing on some sort of weird time delay, but you really have managed to commit a murder that way. Yeah. The people that did the movie think thought a lot about how, how you could spoof the system, how they're getting the information that it is visual. Yeah. So they, they flesh out a lot of details that are, are just left, you know, uh, just suspend your disbelief, focus on <laughs> the fairly simple point that he's making. A yeah. lot of hand waving in the, in the story to the point where if these precogs can actually see petty crimes, there are a lot of petty crimes going on in the story that they are not reporting. 
right? People are aiding and abetting a criminal, and yet that's not being reported. You'd think that as he's committing all these crimes along the way, they would be reporting on his progress because they would be seeing those as well by limiting it to just murder and having murder be so infrequent in the future of the movie. It it just seems tighter, and maybe it's the benefit of knowing you, you're going to have a pretty demanding audience who's going to be looking for these sorts of plot holes. Yeah, they say murder in the movie kind of breaks the fabric of existence in some way, and so it it is so traumatic that it stands out. Whereas, how would these guys know, these precogs know even what constitutes a crime or not? If they're so... It has to be the computers that are interpreting them because they're probably just like, that guy left his wallet on the floor and um, that guy is about to uh, uh, spit in a, a, in, in a river and just like lots of random future predictions. So you we now have a precog voice, Mark. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, they, he reviews the footage by actually it is on tape. So it is it is verbal utterances that are then uh, he you can they're interpreted by the computer. And in fact, they say you need the computer to make sense of it. But then somehow the uh, Anderton is able to go in. And when he's looking for his own minority report, he just manually listens to the tape and brings the tape to somebody else. So maybe you don't need the computer after all. That's one of one of the many hand wavy things in here. So, um, Mark, while we have you, uh, I wanted to ask you about a philosophical aspect of the story. I was reading about the film version, and there's a scene where Anderton and Whitwer are discussing cause and effect, and uh, the ball rolls off the table, and Whitwer catches it, and he says, uh, you know, it was going to, if you didn't, if you didn't catch it, it was still going to fall, just like if we don't uh, catch a murderer, they were still going to do it. And I read that it was a reference to David Hume and a discussion of pool balls and cause and effect. Do you know what that's about? Well, that's about induction. That That's the way science works is you have to assume that things are going to happen in the future the way they did this time. So, uh, Yes, individual circumstances may intervene, but the law of gravity and how it would operate, uh, how physical objects would operate if unrestrained is going to be consistent over time. And so is Hume saying that that doesn't happen or is, is Hume saying that Hume is saying that there's no cause and effect in the billiard balls and – He actually says that, that – right, that, that it's not in the billiard balls. It's in our expectation that there, there actually is no metaphysical fact of cause and effect, at least not the one that we could know anything about. All we do is we see the constant conjunction of events. And so cause and effect is something that we impose on things, right? So Kant took that up very directly that to say that, oh, actually cause and effect is something, you know, that's in the mind. Whereas Hume is, is known more as a, as a skeptic that he's kind of saying, really, there is no cause and effect. It's just an illusion. And this is one of the things I think the, the story is better than the movie that the movie says, well, we still really have free will. But according to the story, we really don't have free will. It's just that having a piece of knowledge could form another causal factor. And so, in fact, this only comes up, actually, his, his, uh, the, the Anderton's wife asked at some point, 
Well, what if you just told everybody instead of just arresting them, just give them a call and say, hey, did you know that you're about to kill somebody? And he says, oh, that'd be too risky because it won't immediately, you know, turn them off. But you'd think that that would be a pretty good deterrent. Like there's already they say the system itself makes crime very rare because they know that the the pre-crime police are going to come in. So it would only be. You know, pretty severe or in, in the film at the very beginning, there's one that's a, a crime of passion. So even if you told the guy about it, uh, you know, it's not going to prevent it from happening. Yeah. So in, in the story, the way it's presented that the people who are behind the scenes, right, the head of the agency, in fact, he's not even saying other staff members, but it's really only Anderton and then his replacement are in danger of this particular thing happening, of them knowing that, that their name, that their name came up. And so, having an alternate future that includes that knowledge. And then once you have the knowledge of the knowledge, then it seems like there's an, there's a potentially endless cycle, right? That the, the, why is it that each precog only sees one little slice of time related to that thing? Like, couldn't the first precog go back and after the third one has chimed in and they say, well, after the third one's report is in your hands, there's going to be another future yet. (laughs) Right. You get a sense that maybe the, Precogs don't ever step in the same river twice. They see a thing happen at one little sliver, and maybe that's just the way it has to work for the sake of of the story. I don't really like that idea that, oh, well, it's fine for me to know that this is going to happen so I can change my opinion, but all those other schmucks, oh, they don't get the benefit of maybe finding out they're going to be a murderer and deciding they're not going to. We're just going to put them in cold storage or do whatever with them. And that's kind of... That's kind of lousy and lazy on his part, but I guess rank hath its power. Or, or or warn them, hey, we know you're going to steal something tomorrow. <laughs> that seems like a pretty good deterrent. If you just call somebody and say, <laughs> instead of arresting them, we, we, we caught you for stealing in advance. <laughs> um, I also find it almost the last decision by Anderton is the reverse Instead of what he's decided to do resulting in a premonition by the precog, the premonition of the precog is what made him decide what he's going to do, right? The, the third, the third premonition said he was going to commit murder. So he felt he had to do it to make sure that the premonitions were correct to keep the pre-crime division credible. That's a good point. The way it's presented, that it's the second premonition, the 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 minority, what he thinks is the minority report that says he's not going to kill, that he's going to be aware of the first premonition, and he's of course then going to deviate from his normal plan. Uh, that that's the thing that makes him fulfill the the actually commit the murder. But you're right; he doesn't know just the second one. He knows the second one and the third one, and they make it very dramatic in the story that the person he's about to kill who's making a speech in public, but apparently has never looked at the things that he's about to <laughs> say out loud, that he's about to read. <laughs> and so he reads on stage or, you know, sees the third premonition that he's a- actually about to get killed after all. And this makes him, you know, quake with fright and run from the stage, but it's too late. The guy shoots him. Well, I mean, I, I shouldn't be yeah. uh, enjoying <laughs> the uh, Kaplan's death, but it, it's a pretty cool moment where he, he realizes the premonition is accurate moments before it happens. And Philip Dick does it in a nice way because he doesn't really reveal what's happening until afterward, what Anderton's 
reasoning is for going ahead and killing him, even though we know he's going to. We don't know why. If we could veer a little bit away from the metaphysics of all of this, um, the story itself, um, it's worth mentioning. I think Brian already covered a couple points where the story is uncomfortably dated. Um, I really didn't like how the precogs were treated. There was a certain callous disdain for their being uh, m- uh, mutant and de- uh, malformed. There's a lot more sympathy for the precogs in the film. See, I thought that that was part of the the Faustian bargain, the utilitarian calculus, that you're, you're victimizing the precogs. You're also victimizing all these criminals who haven't actually done anything, right, that are convicted of pre-crime. So you're, the, the society is unjust in the first place, and it just happens to be unjust in two different ways. And I think that's acknowledged in the, in the story. Perhaps I, I'm wrong. And the movie does take an interesting and different tack on that by giving us precogs who are a little bit more functional, especially when they're taken out of their precog setting and really shines a light on how poorly they're treated to the point where it's even mocked in a way because the way they are publicly portrayed is like a life that they're not actually leading. Oh, it's great to be a precog and they have their own gym and they're treated like rock stars. Whereas in fact, they're living these horrible lives in a tank where they're surrounded by thoughts they can't push out of their heads. So definitely a lot more care was taken about that in the movie for sure. Yeah. I think that they might, this is why I was, I was saying that it's not even necessarily the case that they're seeing the future and then outputting these words. They really are just kind of like computers, just spitting out words. Who knows where they come from? It's a black box, but they are so differently structured than human beings that we can consider them not human for the purposes of the story. I think that's right. Um, have you guys seen, or were you even aware that there was a brief miniseries, or maybe it was a television series, called The Minority Report? I did not see it. I just read about that. It was yeah, that, that existed. on my radar. Yeah. I don't think I... I'm sure I didn't watch it. Did you see any of it? Did you hunt it down? I watched the first half of the first episode. And it was that good. <laughs> and to to uh, paraphrase A League of Their Own, I have seen enough to know that I have seen too much. <laughs> <laughs> was it with anyone uh, worthwhile? Or by anyone worthwhile? Uh, I will say one name that I recognized. Uh, Wilmer Valderrama. Does that name anything to you? Yeah, he was in that 70s show, right? Yep. All right. There you have it. That was the only name I recognized. Uh, it it uh, stylized itself much closer to the film. It really was supposed to be, I think, a television series based on the film. What One idea they had that was kind of nice is this was uh, quite a bit in the future of the film, and so we were... Uh, seeing the lives of the three precogs after precrime had been uh, dismantled. So a nice idea, but uh, I can't recommend uh, (laughs) from the 20 minutes I saw, I cannot recommend watching the rest of it. Yeah. It's interesting that the, the film decides that of course this thing is unjust in both the ways that we're saying. And so it, it, because things end happily, it, It goes away. Whereas in this, the guy Anderton sees the value and he knows that if he doesn't kill the guy, then uh, pre-crime is going to be discredited. And it ends up being more important to him 
he kind of makes a deal with with uh, Witwer, his successor, like, you can just get me exiled, right? <laughs> if I go ahead with this. And Witwer pretty much says, <laughs> yeah, okay, go ahead and do it. Because both of them agree that the pre-crime system is worth it. It is worth this these this this utilitarian trade-off. And it's still a happy ending. It's just their version of the happy ending, so to speak, is that pre-crime keeps going. If I can make a defense for pre-crime, no one's been murdered in a long time. <laughs> can, <I> just... <laughs> can, can someone take that side of the argument? And none of these people who are nice are complaining about it. So, yeah, no, I think it's definitely a best case scenario for everybody involved. <laughs> So they do say that the the convicted are put in camps and they say, you know, oh, if you're you're you'll be in a camp, you'll you won't be lonely there. You'll you'll, pretty much it sounds like they're just put in. It's not described, but they're not, as in the movie, frozen, you know, made into just basically giving up their lives. It's unclear. Do they keep aging when they're frozen? But it's certainly bad. Like you, you don't have any experiences anymore at all. Whereas if you're just in a camp, well, you're being essentially prevented from uh, committing any crimes like that. Although, are there crimes in the camps that none of that, none of this is addressed? If you find somebody that is temperamentally a murderer, why would putting them in a camp with other temper <laughs> murderers like that? It, it seems like there would have to be uh, we we would have to know the details of of how this is uh, prevented. But certainly, when in actual jails, when you you put uh, murderers together uh things don't always go nicely so it seems like the precogs would be constantly distracted by all the in prison violence that's going on and how do how do the people outside know where they're referring to uh, who knows again this is kind of in the movie this is this they recognize this as a problem and so they're like oh well, we got we know the guy's first name but we don't know which one he is and we got to look in the vision for an address and you know it comes up Whereas somehow it's just, you know, magically never misses its uh, mark in, in the, uh, in the, in the story. You know, it's, uh, it's funny that you uh, mentioned these uh, camps. Um, there was a guy, Arnold Hutchnecker. Uh, I don't know if that name will mean anything to you. Um, he was the therapist and confidant to Richard Nixon. Anyhow, a, a very interesting character. He was a German who fled. Nazi Germany. He was a vocal critic, actually, of of Hitler. And sometime while he was bending Nixon's ear, he proposed that children ages six to eight years old be given a predictive psychological test to determine if uh, they had the potential to become <laughs> future criminals. And and what if they were? Then his idea was to put them into a camp and he actually used the word camp which he later regretted because after all he had been critical of uh of nazi germany but a camp that he later referred to as a quote romantic setting with trees out west (laughs) god so what happened with this proposal i mean did it have any legs at all I'm not aware of anything like that. I know i don't really know what happened to it i mean i i know that a lot of people didn't like that Nixon was listening to his therapist. And by the way, I believe it's the only verified occurrence of a sitting president getting or getting help from a mental professional. Uh, Ford actually denied that he was even seeing him for therapy, but that he was only using him as a confidant. 
What a, you you wonder why the, in the story they they're so afraid of a single false positive, as a <laughs> as opposed to you know oh we locked one guy up that we then had some evidence due to the minority report that he wouldn't have been a killer after all, but it's still a pretty damn good percentage. Like we presented all those murders. <laughs> And we have one false positive. Like that's not enough to 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 make the system shut down. In in a real and the way actual political calculations would go. Although you might wonder, well, are these maybe all false positives? Like they don't know. And so that's the problem. If if you if you admit that there can be a false positive, the whole thing might fall apart. Mm-hmm. In pre-crime, how do you ever really know, right? Unless you actually catch them, like they do in the movie with the scissors over. <laughs> the guy's head and he's and even even at that moment he's about to stab the guy he says i wasn't gonna do it i was gonna give him the worst haircut <laughs> well this is certainly a live issue because we you know both with potential school shooters and with potential terrorists folks are very interested in is there a psychological or uh you know a questionnaire you can give to all uh Incoming Im- immigrants, uh, or, or just anybody who's uh, looked at, at at certain websites, we would lo- love to uh, show up at their house and give them a test and determine whether they're going to fall into one of these two categories. And yeah, if we find yeah, this is this person is really likely a terrorist, but it's an American citizen. What can we do? Like you just well, we'll keep an eye on them. That's that's <laughs> that's really all you can morally or legally do. Mark, that's a really good point. So uh, if I could change gears again, um, I do want to mention that I found a uh, literary example of pre-crime before pre-crime, <laughs> pre-pre-crime. 1871, Through the Looking Glass, uh, the sequel to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Uh, guys, can I play for you uh, a scene from that? Do it. Sure. This is a conversation between the White Queen and Alice. This is from Chapter 5. I don't understand you, said Alice. It's dreadfully confusing. That's the effect of living backwards, the queen said kindly. It always makes one a little giddy at first. Living backwards? Alice repeated in great astonishment. I never heard of such a thing. But there's one great advantage in it. That's one's memory works both ways. I'm sure mine only works one way, Alice remarked. I can't remember things before they happen. It's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards, the queen remarked. What sort of things do you remember best? Alice ventured to ask. Oh, things that happen the week after next, the queen replied in a careless tone. For instance, now, she went on sticking a large piece of plaster on her finger as she spoke. There's the king's messenger. He's in prison now, being punished, and the trial doesn't even begin till next Wednesday. And of course, the crime comes last of all. Suppose he never commits the crime, said Alice. That would be all the better, wouldn't it? The queen said as she bound the plaster around her finger with a bit of ribbon. Alice felt there was no denying that. Of course it would be all the better, she said, but it wouldn't be all the better his being punished. You're wrong there, at any rate, said the queen. Were you ever punished? Only for faults, said Alice. And you were all the better for it, I know, the queen said triumphantly. Yes. But then I had done the things I was punished for, said Alice. That makes all the difference. But if you hadn't done them, the queen said, that would have been better still. Better and better and better. Her voice went higher with each better, till it got quite to squeak at last. 
Alice was just beginning to say, There's a mistake somewhere, when the queen began screaming so loud that she had to leave the sentence unfinished. That is really nicely done. Have you ever read that book? Definitely. I've read it. I do not remember that at all. I think I would I would generally interpret it as these characters are insane <laughs> rather than uh, <laughs> that there's there's an actual pre, you know projection of the future and actual living backward. Yeah, but it's odd. We don't know. It's odd how much they actually discuss the implications and the fairness. I mean, their their conversation has some some place in this conversation for sure. Uh huh. Have we uh, beaten this one to death? Uh, I think you. Pro- <laughs> the answer was probably yes about fifteen minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, this is one of his. Uh, this is one of his best short stories, and he's got some real good ones. Uh, so. If this is a springboard for some of you to read uh, more of his short fiction, I certainly would re- recommend it. Um, I haven't read his uh, his novels, which is a little crazy because I've read uh, like 50 of his short stories. Uh, Brian, you've read a few, huh? Oh, sure. And I don't think characterization is one of his strong points. And a lot like Larry Niven, I just feel like short stories are Philip K. Dick's wheelhouse. There's just no doubt about that. Starting with his collected short works, those giant five books that have every short story he ever wrote is probably a better recommendation than most of his novels. I haven't read them all, but I've read quite a few of them, and I'm always kind of walking away wishing they were a little bit better. I I read a a bunch of them. Uh, I I would recommend if folks want to start somewhere, A Scanner Darkly. That's a good one. I stand by what I said. I do even wish that were a little better than it is, but you're right. And there's a web page, I think it may be through AV Club, letting people know where they should begin tackling different types of things, whether you're going to, where to start in on Doctor Who or where to start in on Philip K. Dick. And I think that might have been the one that they recommended for people to start with, Mark, is A Scanner Darkly. Because ah. some of the other ones are just a little harder to start if you're not familiar with what you're going to get with this guy. Uh, and as far as short stories go, uh, if you do get that five-volume collection, I think it's chronological. Um, I don't think I would start at the early ones. They are completely in order. That's right. It's five volumes, and I think two, three, and four are the best. He's a little rough in the beginning, and he's a little trippy at the end, but... The middle three are really his his sweet spot. Right. And Minority Report is from the second one. And let's dive into our next segment, which is our quantitative trivia challenge game. And Mark, you're going to stick around for this, right? Uh, Jesus. All right. I'll yeah, try. well, you better. I'll give it a shot. Otherwise, we don't have a game. Well, this is going to be Philip K. Dick movie adaptation trivia. In fact, it's about two movies. Total Recall, and Blade Runner. Actually, it's about four movies. The two Blade Runner movies and then the two, the two Total Recall movies. In any case, all of the questions have a numerical answer. And the way it works is they're all worth two points. The person who gets closer gets both points. If there's a tie, you split the point. So these are the four categories. The categories are the calendar, awards, movie making, and box office. 
And in all these categories, there's a question about Blade Runner and a question about Total Recall. So we uh, flipped a coin before starting, and Ken gets to pick first. Ken, go ahead and uh, pick your movie and category. Blade Runner movie making. Very good. According to multiple web sources, how many versions of the original Blade Runner movie are there? So are Mark and I both going to guess? Yeah, you're going to guess, and Mark's going to guess. Oh, I guess first? You guess first. You're usually going to guess first half the time. Guess it going first is, I'm not sure it's an advantage, but it happened. <laughs> I am going to say four. Mark? That is what I want to say, because I think I looked this up within the last year on Wikipedia, and it was four. So that's my guess. You split the point. The answer is seven. Apparently, there is a working <laughs> prototype version, a San Diego sneak preview version, a U.S. theatrical release, international theatrical release, U.S. broadcast, the director's cut, and the final cut. Uh, these all have to do with what people actually saw. So I don't mm. know. That seems like it's way too many versions. But you split the point. And then, Mark, I'm going to give you the corresponding question for Total Recall. You'll go first. According to moviebodycounts.com, what is Hauser slash Quaid's own body count? How many is he personally responsible for killing in the original Total Recall movie? Yeah, it's been 20 some years, I think, since I saw this. Ah, uh, let's say 40. Ken. <laughs> I was going to say 40. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's split the point. What the- <laughs> So essentially what you're doing is you're asking me to say more or or greater, less than, or the same. Um, I will say less than that. I'll say 39.9. Oh, the answer was 39.97. The answer was 44. Oh, so Mark will take two points for that one. The score is three to one for Mark. All right, Mark, you you have the disadvantage of picking first. Another category, do you want... Total Recall or Blade Runner? Uh, Blade Runner, definitely. Let's say uh, awards. Actually, I forget what the, the awards and box office and what's the other category? The calendar. Yeah, I don't know what that means. So <laughs> we're going to go with awards. Okay. For Blade Runner and awards, for how many Oscars were the two Blade Runner movies nominated combined? Uh, three. Ken? Um. I'm going to go higher. Uh, do we have bonus points for getting it on the nose? There are no bonus points in this game. <laughs> so some answers, 3.01. <laughs> the answer is seven. <laughs> and I do believe that the sequel won a few of those. All right, Ken, how many Razzie Awards was the Total Recall remake from 1990 nominated for? The remake was 1990? Oh, I'm sorry. The remake of the 1990, right? When uh, Mark, we saw that movie together... When I was in town, I was actually in town with the Partially Examined Life guys. I went to this movie with Mark and Seth and Wes, and all three of you fell asleep during that monstrosity. <laughs> I stayed awake. I was a designated driver. I sort of remember yeah, this Yeah, is that now. coming back to you? Wait, wait, Brian, why did you stay awake? Don't you know that that's what you do when you go watch a movie with the Partially Examined Life guys? It's not really about the movie. It's about getting good night, a good nap in. <laughs> How many Razzie Awards? 
Um, so first of all, I didn't even know until just now that this there was even a sequel to this thing. Uh, who, who's the actor in that? <laughs> it was a remake, and it was with uh, I get the Collins mixed up, Colin Firth and Colin Farrell. Who's the one who was in the uh, Minority Report movie? That was Colin Farrell. Farrell. So Colin Farrell plays Hauser slash Quaid, and it's not set on Mars. I think it's set on some dystopian future Earth. I, I think pretty much having a woman with three breasts was the only thing that was common in both movies. So <laughs> the, yeah. Uh, so how many Razzies for the remake of total recall? I will say nominations or wins. Nominations. <laughs> <laughs> Scarecrows around the wins. But okay. Uh, let's go with, Five. Mark? Uh, let's say fewer. Yeah, it's fewer. It is one. So the score is not Injustice. Five to I'm three. just doubting that the Razzies are so detailed that they have a <laughs> Razzie for cinematography and a Razzie for best animated short <laughs> and a ra- I, it's, They have it's Razzie probably... technical awards like that new uh, Mowgli Worst movie props. with the horrible, horrible animation it's going to get. Worst visual effects. Okay. Ah. So the last two categories are the calendar and box office. Uh, Ken, I think you pick first. Uh, let's go with the calendar and uh, Blade Runner. How many years passed between the setting of Blade Runner and the Blade Runner sequel? Not when they were made, but when they are set. Right, 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 right. Uh, oh, I know... I know one of the years, but not the other. Shoot. The one that's not in the title is the one you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot it's in the title. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to say 27 years. I don't know. It's a random number. I'll say 2699 Oh, you went the wrong direction, Mark. It's 30 years. The original ah, is set actually okay. this year in 2019. And then the sequel is set in 2049. Gotcha. Do you remember there was a, a video game, Minor 2049er? Uh, oh, totally. I do, I do remember was that. Was it ColecoVision or uh, something like that? Yeah, it was on a knows. computer. It was a computer game. Yeah. It, it was based right, on the Total Recall series. <laughs> It's all tied up. Five he five. doesn't. He doesn't remember that he. That he's, <laughs> in fact, not a miner. <laughs> he's a farmer. Can you implant me with the memory of being a miner? <laughs> okay, Mark. In what year was the? In, in what year was the original Total Recall movie set? Uh no freaking idea. Maybe nineteen. Maybe probably at the two thousand one. Let's say that. I'm it definitely going later. Quite a space odyssey. <laughs> I'm yeah. going later. <laughs> yeah, it is much later. It's 2084. In fact, the director, Paul Verhoeven, mentions how Blade Runner wasn't set far enough into the future, and he wanted to make a movie that he would not be around for by the time <laughs> the year came along. That it was. So he was consciously, he always felt like the future was catching up to movies too quickly. Okay, seven to five for Ken going into the... Last 
category, and that is box office. And if I'm remembering right, it is Mark's turn to pick a movie. Let's go with Total Recall. Okay. In the original Total Recall in 1990, Home Alone was the top grossing movie at $286 million, and Total Recall grossed $119 million. What rank was Total Recall among grossing movies in 1990? Uh, let's say 15th. I'm going to say it was better than that, 14. 14th. The answer is seven. Uh, the first six were Home Alone, Ghost, Dances with Wolves, Pretty Women, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Hunt for Red October. And I think Ken has pulled away on this, but we'll finish the game anyway. And the question goes to Ken, and the category is box office for Blade Runner. So Blade Runner came out in 1982, which is considered by many to be the miraculous year for science fiction and fantasy movies. It was actually 26th in the box office that year. How many science fiction and fantasy movies were ahead of it that year? Let's see. There was the blue lagoon. <laughs> there was. <laughs> so Mark side bet. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> we should try to name. Other films from 1982 that were not science fiction films. Uh, there's On Golden Pond. There's Chud. There's uh... Uh, Ordinary People. I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm going to say that of the top... So the question is, of the top 25, how many were science fiction or fantasy? Correct. I'm going to say a good 12 of them were. Oh, I would say fewer than that for sure. All right, that's some good redemption points for you, Mark. The answer, would you want to throw a number? Maybe you'll get it right. I was thinking closer to five. So you'd still get it right there because the answer is seven. And so the ones that were ahead of it were, and man, this was a great year. E.T., Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Poltergeist, Dark Crystal, Conan the Barbarian, Sword and the Sorcerer, and Tron. And some that came after it were uh, The Road Warrior, John Carpenter's The Thing, Cat People, Creep show and arguably the wall. This kind of feels like a slightly genre movie to me. Holy cow, what a year. What oh what year and, was um, Alien? Uh Alien It was like seventy was in the seventies. Yeah. Okay. Also coming out that year were Beastmaster, a Halloween three season of the witch, and uh Zapped with Scott Bayo and Willie Ames. So, oh, I assume that was in the top 25. <laughs> that's, that's why I was overguessing. Well, that and E.T. are essentially the same movie. So it's I got to look up when, when Chud came out. Yeah, probably I don't think later. I would have seen Chud. I assume I would have seen Chud on that list. Oh, did we, did Mark or I name any uh, of the other non genre films? Here we go E.T., Tootsie, An Officer and a Gentleman, Rocky Three, Star Trek Two, 48 Hours, Poltergeist, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Annie, and The Verdict. I remember seeing The Verdict in the theater. How old was I? Gosh. 
11 years old, and it just starts off with this like long stream of F-bombs from Paul Newman, and Grandpa was mortified, but what are you going to do? That might have been my first R-rated movie. What a disappointment. <laughs> also in 1982, a film that I just saw two days ago for the first time, Basket Case, about the, the, the man that has a, uh, a a twin that was lopped off from him when he was young, who he carries around in a basket and he kills. <laughs> What? <laughs> we had the free uh, the free seven day pass to the uh, uh, Shutter Network, so uh, <laughs> watching some dumb horror movies. Yikes! Well, thanks for playing, guys. Uh, Ken, one by two points. We'll do that again sometime. Yeah, that was fun. Good, uh, good game there, Mark. Uh, at a hundred dollars a point. <laughs> You can get your winnings out of this basket I have. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just guessing based on context, that's a reference to On Golden Pond. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Mark, thanks so much. Thanks, Mark. So long, guys. Well, that was a lot of fun. Let's go into our last segment, which is our spoiler-free recommendations for the month. And Ken, if it's okay, I'd like you to go first. Thanks, Bri. I'm going to recommend today a short story called Farewell to the Master by Harry Bates. This is a classic tale from 1940. It first appeared in Astounding Science Fiction. And uh, I have to note right off the bat that it is loosely the basis for the classic film, The Day the Earth Stood Still. I know that the film is considered a classic by many, and I did watch it fairly recently, and I enjoyed it, the original. But the plot of the story is significantly different enough, and in important ways, that you're simply missing what's great about the short story uh, in the film. So, uh, on the surface... Farewell to the Master is one of countless many stories about an alien visitation, which, by the way, always seemed to be in Washington, D.C. or New York City. You know, I think I would aim for that that Green Park in the middle of either of those two cities. I, I think it actually makes a fair amount of sense. It's a little bit of green order in the chaos, kind of like a landing strip. I'm totally good with it, whether it's the National Mall or Central Park. Yeah, and and I don't even know if this is the uh, the trope maker for uh, for for landing in uh, in Central Park. I guess this one's in Washington D.C. Right, the original story is Washington D.C. Sure, we've probably all seen this iconic image of the actor Michael Rennie uh, coming out of a spaceship with a giant robot in the film. Its Gort. name is Gort. Oh, beat you to it, <laughs> and. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can't think, I can't uh, think about Gort without thinking about <laughs> Bort. Um, <laughs> we've seen Gort when we were at the science fiction and well, I think what's called the pop science museum now in Seattle. Oh yeah, for sure. But the, uh, the robot is named Gnut in the short story. So, uh, that part of the story is the same as the movie where you've got uh, a human like creature come out and a 
a humanoid or well, roughly human shape robot uh, also coming out of the spaceship. Um, from there, the stories diverge a bit. Um, boy, I really, I don't want to give away too much because what happens to the human whose name is, uh, Klaatu, I think, and what happens to, uh, Gnut is important not to spoil. And it is, again, if you've seen the film, it is just not the same plot enough that you could still easily enjoy the short story. Well, Ken, can I give you my own comment on this story? Cause I really like it. And I've recommended this to my science fiction book club that we read this story and watch the movie. And man, people did not like this story. I was really disappointed. You know, you come to a book club with a suggestion and I, I think it's really good. I think who knows why in that particular story, people didn't care for it. I think it's a winner for sure. So I happened to stumble across the fact that in the early 70s, uh, there was a comic book series called Worlds Unknown that uh, serialized a few different classic science fiction stories, and uh, including um, Arena by Frederick Brown. Uh, Farewell to the Master is one of them, and Harry Bates uh, either contributed or had or gave his blessing. Uh, I looked at I think it's only five issues, and I looked at some of the authors that were involved, and I have to get my hands on this thing. It looks so cool. It's got Frederick Brown. Um, uh, how do you pronounce El Sprague de Camp? Is that his name? If it's pronounced differently, I don't know how to pronounce it. And this is like a comic book comic book. It really I've, – I've seen Arena, and it looks – I mean, it's a lot like reading any other comic book from that era. It doesn't have the feel of it being something different like a graphic novel. It's drawn to look like a Superman or – uh, another type of comic book hero type comic book. Was it Marvel that even did this or? Yeah. Yeah, sure. It was made by Marvel. And uh, some of the other uh, authors are Frederick Pohl and Theodore Sturgeon. So a classic science fiction reader uh, like myself, uh, I think will be drawn to this. Uh, so I'm going to take a look at this and perhaps this will be a recommendation in a future uh, podcast. Uh, but uh, I was so excited to see this thing existed, and I didn't know that it did. That's great. Let's both try to hunt that down. So, uh, Brian, uh, what do you uh, have for us for your recommendation this month? Okay, mine is a – I don't want to say it's a lukewarm recommendation, but it's a recommendation with reservations. And part of it is because I think this is a movie, and I think the beginning isn't very good. It takes a while – to get going. I think it's about half an hour too long. So I'm going to, I think, spoil it a little bit, no more than the Netflix description of it was a spoiler. The movie's called Animal World, and it came out in 2018, and it's a Chinese movie uh, subtitled into English. Here's the description, which talks about the movie when it finally gets good. An unlucky, debt-ridden teen resorts to his math skills when he's forced into a deadly tournament of rock-paper-scissors run by a diabolical host. And I gotta say, the movie's a little bit goofy. He, he, the main character, Zhang, fantasizes about being a clown whenever he's uh, faced with highly emotional situations, and there's a lot of gratuitous action which is just going on in his head, and... It does get good when he's finally on this ship sailing through international waters competing with these other people down on their luck and they each start off with 
three stars on their arms and 10 cards each with a rock, a paper, or a scissor on it. And by the end of four hours, they have to have at least still three stars, but no cards left. And there's a lot of uh, math and uh, game theory and shenanigans and loans being taken and the cost of things happening and predicting what other people have uh, layered on top of a lot of these fantasy tropes of this guy. Again, imagining he's in these big fight scenes that he's not normally in. It's just sort of borderline science fiction and fantasy. The way that, in my mind, maybe Pan's Labyrinth maybe really isn't even fantasy or that other movies where people are envisioning fantastic things that maybe aren't happening aren't. And it's not universally a great movie, but it sure is a fun movie when it's doing something a little different from what I've ever seen before. I have never even heard of it. Where did you say it was uh, made? It's streaming on Netflix in the U.S. It's made in China. It's actually a remake of a Japanese movie that is also about a rock, paper, scissors tournament, but it isn't quite as gonzo and doesn't appear to have any science fictional or fantasy elements at all. And because the rules are, there are no rules to borrow from Streets of Fire uh it's called Animal World because people just behave like animals when their lives are on the line competing in this tournament. Take it with a grain of salt. It's not a perfect movie by any chance, but I always felt like Roger Ebert, one of his things that he always looked for was a movie that was just something he hadn't seen before. And this is a movie I haven't seen before. And just on that alone, uh, having to suffer through a lot of things that just seem like there something else warmed over. This is kind of fun. So I'll recommend it to someone who is into that kind of thing. Well, I only gave uh, the Minority Report television series 20 minutes of my time. Do I have to (laughs) commit more than that to Animal World to get to something good? I think you do, but you could also just think about... uh, Clowns whenever I... (laughs) Doing something else. Well, I wouldn't fast forward, but I'd be doing something else while you're waiting for the tournament to start. There's also a major Hollywood star who is in it, who I won't spoil, who must have had some role in producing it. Otherwise, (laughs) I can't explain their appearance in this movie. I mean, that is the true shocker. So maybe that will be this part I won't spoil. (laughs) Please be Colin Farrell. The the trifecta for him in our episode. Ah, great. Okay. Well, thanks, Bri, for that, I guess we'll call it spoiler-free recommendation. And that does it for this month's episode of the Constellary Tales podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, Ken and I would love to hear from you. If you have a comment for us, go ahead and leave it on our website, constellary.com. You can read our magazine there as well and find links to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Spotify. You can also support our magazine on Patreon. We'd like to thank our guest, Mark Linzemeyer. The passage from Through the Looking Glass was read by Constellary Tales Associate Editor Vanessa Callejas. Constellary Tales is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network at partiallyexaminedlife.com. For Brian Hurt, I'm Ken Gerber. Thank you for listening and talk to you next month.